First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. When you arrive there, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks? Paul writes as he's borne along by the Spirit. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The late fourth and early fifth century Christian leader and theologian, Jerome, famous for the translation known as the Vulgate, once lamented about the dearth of exemplary leadership in the church. Listen to the words Jerome wrote in a letter. Many build churches nowadays, by the way, especially important for us as we're considering a remodel. Many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid, end quote. As many of you know, we have taken a short break from the book of Deuteronomy to discuss the nature, importance, and function of Christian leadership broadly and church elders in particular. This morning, we arrive at one of the most central passages in the New Testament concerning church leadership, again, broadly, and church elders specifically, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where the Apostle Paul offers to Timothy, and then, of course, in God's kindness, to the church until Jesus returns, a list of representative characteristics or qualifications that together compose what I would prefer call the portrait of an elder. The portrait of an elder. In fact, as we get started here, I want you to see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this isn't a series where we're going to talk directly about 
deacons. However, you will notice in 1 Timothy 3 that the apostle Paul addresses first the office of elder and second, the office of deacon. He begins to talk about deacons in verse eight. And what you'll find if you were to read through these qualifications and these portraits, as it were, if you were to compare these two portraits, you'll find that they're quite similar. And we'll point out some of that here in just a bit. But these two portraits are quite similar. In fact, I would suggest to you that the primary difference in the two lists and in the function or the functions of an elder and a deacon compared to one another and contrasted with one another is what we find concerning the office of an elder that he must be a man able to teach. So the elder is a teaching office as a deacon is primarily a serving office. But so much of what we're going to say concerning elders applies to deacons. However, our focus is on elders in particular. And we're going to walk through this portrait of an elder in three stages. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. First of all, we're going to look together at the elder's exemplary character. The elder's exemplary character. Now, just a word of warning here for those of you who are taking notes, you'll need more space for this first point. And the reason you'll need more space for this first point is this is Paul's primary concern. He spends the majority of his time talking about the elder's character. So first of all, the elder's exemplary character. Secondly, we will highlight the elder's capable teaching the elders capable teaching. We won't spend long there. There's one bit in the text about the elder being a man who is able to teach. So we'll unpack that for a moment together. And then finally, after unpacking the elders character and teaching, we will conclude with the elders godly influence. There is a particular sphere where the elders godly influence can be most apparently observed in the text. And so we'll turn to that and Paul gives actually a couple of verses to this final point, the elder's godly influence. Now, there are a few questions, rather a couple of questions, I'd like for you to consider as we're moving through this text. And the reason I want you to consider these questions on the front end is because I want you to see how this text is not simply for elders. It's not simply for those who have officially been recognized as church leaders. This text is for the church. So I want you to see this as a text for the church. So consider the answer to these couple of questions. You can jot these down. You can just log them away. In your memory, they'll be easy for you to remember as we move through. And there are questions concerning the relevance of the text. First of all, ask yourself the question, who? As we move through the portrait, who might Christ be calling to serve as elder here at First Baptist Powell? One of the reasons, one of the reasons why I decided to preach a couple of sermons on this issue is because we do, as we move forward, we have a need for more elders. And I would submit to you that what I'd like to see the Lord do, and I believe he's going to do, is create a culture and cultivate a culture where we consistently have these qualified men who are bubbling up to the surface, called to be and set apart by the congregation to be elders, some of them serving as elders here in our local church, others perhaps being sent out to other churches locally and beyond to serve as elders under the authority of Jesus Christ. So first, ask yourself the question as you move through this, who? 
Who might Christ be calling to serve as elder here at EPP? Secondly, I want you to consider this question. How? How? How can I become more like this portrait? What I want to submit to you as we begin painting the portrait with the brush given to us by the Spirit of God in the text, I want to submit to you that this is in many ways a description of the mature follower of Jesus Christ. It's so very applicable to each and every one of us. In this text, we find out that the elder is not necessarily the most gifted person. In fact, it may be that the most gifted person has no business being an elder. No, the elder actually is someone who demonstrates and displays that he has been walking with the Lord in faithfulness for an extended period of time. What that means is this really does give us a kind of blueprint for the mature follower of Jesus Christ. How is it that this person can be, by the Spirit of God, built up into this image, this portrait? So ask yourself this question as we move through. How is it that by God's grace, through the work of the Spirit of God, I might become more like this Christian? I think for each and every one of us, there's an answer to that question because we're all in process Well, with this in mind, let's look together at these three stages. First of all, we'll begin with the elder's exemplary character. And right out of the gate, as I read through the text, perhaps you noticed this, right out of the gate, you may have recognized that most of the qualifications provided in this text deal explicitly with the elder's character. Rather than, I'm going to say this a couple of times probably, rather than his gifting rather than his charisma, rather than his rhetorical abilities, or what oftentimes gets referred to as leadership abilities. These are leadership qualities, but for the Apostle Paul, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, leadership is character. In fact, one of my mentors, Dr. Jeffrey Bingham, who's at Southwestern, Baptist Theological Seminary. He once gave a lecture series at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And that lecture series was called The Soul of a Leader. And I'd encourage you, if you have the time, to get on Southern's website and pull that lecture series up. It can be a bit technical at times. He is a patristic scholar, okay? So keep that in mind. In fact, the subtitle of the lecture series, just so you know, is Acuity from Antiquity. (laughs) If that tells you anything about it. But in that lecture series, Dr. Bingham said just what I said a moment ago. I got this from his lecture series. Leadership is character. He continues in the lecture series by saying these words, the essence of a leader is not managerial skills. It's not certain habits or elements of a personality, but rather the essence of a leader is his or her character. What matters most, according to Dr. Bingham, is, quote, that the leader is a virtuous person. And then he continues, a corporate culture should not guide an ecclesiological culture. What does he mean by that? Corporate culture should not guide the church. 
And my, oh my, oh my, how it has, how it has in evangelicalism. When the church follows the patterns and emphases established by the corporate world, the result is, may I submit to you, disastrous. Consider the many examples, would you? For just a moment, I'm not going to mention names, goodness gracious, and there's no need, but consider the many examples of these high capacity and extremely gifted leaders in the church who became another statistic because they lacked character. Pastors of some of the largest churches in America are now a statistic. And had you evaluated those ministries when they were at their zenith, you would have said potentially what I would have said. Boy, the Spirit of God is really at work there. And perhaps the Spirit was. But it's so easy to lose sight of the reality that God is not interested fundamentally and essentially in calling gifted men and women to serve him. He's interested fundamentally and essentially of calling, in some ways, needy men and women, normal men and women, and in the case of church elders, normal men who are mature with respect to Christian character and faithfulness, the kind of men that are the same man behind closed doors as they are in public the kind of men that exude integrity. And isn't this what Paul says, even concerning the Christian, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2? Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. There were not many of you wise. What is he saying there? Not many of you are, you know, the most gifted people by worldly standards. That was the nature of the church in the early church. It just was. In fact, so many critics of the early church, I won't get too far into this because I've got a lot to say and a limited amount of time to say it, but so many critics of the early church criticized the church because they didn't have many gifted people. They were comprised of just ordinary people. In fact, there's a particular case where there was a slave who may have been, it's tough to tease all this out historically, who may have actually been an elder in a church. That means that potentially there was a slave who served as an elder and it may have been that his master was a member of the church. The slave was considered the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And God called such men to lead the church. But for us as evangelicals, we consistently look for the high profile, high octane, charismatic, extremely gifted leaders because that, after all, is evidence of the Spirit of God, right? In some ways. But maybe, maybe more acute evidence of the Spirit of God is moral transformation when a sinner is not simply forgiven in Christ, but being transformed by the power of Christ. That's the kind of man God calls to be an elder in the church. Well, let's look at some of these qualifications mentioned by Paul. We won't do them justice, but we're going to walk through a number of them. A number of them fall under this first category, exemplary character. Notice the elder must be a man whose life characteristically displays godliness. Notice verse 2. 
Therefore, an overseer, and I should say this, by the way, overseer is used interchangeably with elder. In fact, in Titus chapter one, Titus, rather Paul to Titus uses both words. He speaks of the elder and he speaks of the overseer in the same context, synonymously. We mentioned this last week, but just to remind you this week, overseer is another word or bishop, it gets translated, another word for elder. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, Paul writes. In other words, the leader's character is immune to accusations of overt impropriety and ungodliness. Verse 7 Kind of bookending it here, Paul begins with this above reproach. And then in verse seven, he says, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Not only must the leader's character be apparent to those inside the church, the leader's character must be apparent to those outside of the church. Additionally, the elder must be a man of sexual and marital fidelity. Paul says in verse two, notice that the overseer must be, and here's the phrase, the husband of one wife. This is a translational decision by the English Standard Version translators. And I will tell you that if there is one qualification in the list of qualifications in this portrait that is controversial, it's this one. Throughout church history, there have been a number of positions taken on this particular qualification. What does Paul mean as he's carried along by the Spirit of God to insist on the elder being, as the English Standard Version translates it, the husband of one wife. It's possible to translate this a one-woman man. It's possible to translate this the man of one woman. A number of ways we could translate this. What is meant? Well, let me mention a few positions for you. I don't want to get too far into this, but I do think it'd be appropriate to mention these. And then I'll share with you where I stand and You're welcome to agree or disagree, but I hope on the basis of the word of God. Some suggest that this qualification means that an elder is married. After all, how can you be the husband of one wife if you're not married, right? And so some have suggested that this qualification actually insists upon the elder being married. I'm I'm unconvinced for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is the Apostle Paul was unmarried. I also take it that Paul himself served as an elder. If we read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, I think that's the way he speaks about his role in the laying on of hands, laying on of his hands, and the laying on of the elder's hands concerning Timothy. So I take it that Paul was an elder and Paul was unmarried. There's also another problem, I think, with this position, and that is that Jesus was unmarried. And I do think this is problematic. Moreover, Paul commends singleness as an opportunity through which to serve with greater freedom in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I'm I'm unconvinced of this. There are good Christians that believe this. I'm unconvinced. Other Christians interpret the husband of one wife here as a prohibition against having more than one wife at a time. That is to say, they they would suggest that Paul is prohibiting polygamy. Now, let me say this. I do think Paul prohibits polygamy. I think that that's a part of what's happening in this particular qualification, but I do not think this is Paul's primary focus. And the reason I don't think it's Paul's primary focus is because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he'll give a very similar qualification 
the wife of one husband concerning widows who are going to be enrolled in the church. What we do know is that what was foreign to this particular world in the first century was the practice known as polyandry or having more than one husband. So it doesn't seem to be a way of talking about polygamy directly. Although I will tell you that the language itself causes some to lean that way if we were just to read the language as a standalone. Still others interpret this qualification. This is a third view I'll mention to you. They interpret this qualification to prohibit a second marriage, whether on account of widowhood or divorce. And there are different views on this. Some say, no, this is just prohibiting a divorced man from becoming an elder. Others, actually, there are some in the early church who argued that, no, this prohibits any kind of a second marriage whatsoever, whether it was on account of widowhood or divorce. The difficulty with this interpretation is, I think, squaring it with other portions of Scripture. For example, Paul seems to pro, rather permit a second marriage for those whose spouses have died, Romans 7, verses 1 to 3. So that addresses the widowhood bit. Additionally, Scripture appears to permit certain cases of divorce. It's never God's desire. Without getting into the weeds here too far, Scripture does appear to permit divorce in certain circumstances, in particular when there is sexual infidelity or when there is abandonment. In fact, Paul will use the language of freedom, which I take to be released from the covenant, the marriage covenant. Moreover, and this is one of the, one of the primary problems I have with this view, and many faithful Christians hold to this view, many, doubtless many in this church, so there's room for diversity on this. It's a challenging issue. One of the challenges I face with this view is simply the tr translating the Greek phrase. It's an odd way to address it if indeed Paul's actually trying to prohibit a man who's once been married to someone else and now married to another person if he's trying to pro prohibit that person from becoming an elder. If Paul's concern was divorce, there are two terms in Greek that explicitly talk about divorce. He doesn't use either one of them. So it's, it's, it's possible, but it's a very odd way, and perhaps even an unprecedented way. I can't find another case where Paul talks about, or anyone talks about divorce in this way. That is, the husband of one wife. So as a result, here's where I stand. Hopefully you won't so throw stones at me. I think the spirit here is demanding that the elder be a man of sexual and marital fidelity broadly. I think it's a broad way of just talking about a one-woman man. That means if the elder is not married, it's assuming the elder is married, why? Because most men who qualified concerning their age to be elders were married. It's just the nature of it. But if the elder is not married, he's sexually faithful outside of marriage. If the elder is married, he's sexually faithful within marriage. This is a man who exudes fidelity. Well, what does that mean concerning divorce? Well, it doesn't remove it from the table of discussion. There are a whole host of things to consider regarding the nature of the divorce, the timing of the divorce, the cause of the divorce. A lot of things to consider here, but I don't think this qualification directly addresses the issue. I think it indirectly gets at it. That's my particular perspective. There are many brothers and sisters who would disagree and hold to one or the other position. So I humbly submit that to you as someone who desires to understand and submit to the word of God.
Additionally, notice the elder must be a man of self-control and gentle restraint. I want you to look down at verses two and three. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. These are all related terms. And then verse three, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. That is to say, church family, the elder is not governed by reactive or ungodly impulses. He's worthy of respect and admiration in the way he bridles his own desires, even in difficult situations, even in controversial situations. May I submit to you that Leadership brings with it controversial situations. There are memories that I have, even in the short amount of time I've had the privilege of serving as a leader in Christ's church, almost 14 years now. Even in those 14 years, I can recall specifics of instances where it was a difficult situation. And by the grace of Christ, through the work of the Spirit, I was called to show forth gentleness, kindness, mercy, self-control, and restraint. Always succeeding? No. But certainly aspiring in God's kindness and hopefully, hopefully in his goodness, faithfully demonstrating these characteristics. This is a man who cannot be given to slavery with respect to anything outside of the gospel. That includes alcohol or anything else for that matter. He's not given over to these things. He's bridled by the spirit of God. He's controlled by the gospel and he's compelled for the glory of God. That's the elder. Verse three, I know we're moving through these quickly but I want you to see the portrait more than I want you to see each individual qualification. Verse three, we learn that the elder must have proper motivations in ministry. He is driven by a passion for the glory of Christ and the good of the church rather than being driven by a love of money. We mentioned this last Lord's Day. I won't dwell here long, but I do want you to see that. He's not driven by any other version for that matter of selfish gain. Now look down at verse two again, where one of the often overlooked characteristics appears. In fact, a brother this week reminded me this is one of the often overlooked characteristics of an elder. Notice the elder must be hospitable. Do you see that? The elder must be hospitable. In fact, if we were to break apart this word, it's not typically the way we understand words, but the history of the word just means something along the lines of a lover of strangers. Beautiful image. He must be a lover of strangers. He must be welcoming. Now this doesn't mean, by the way, this does not mean, this is 21st century America. This doesn't mean that he has to offer all of the finest things to his guests or that his wife has to offer all the finest things to their guests. It doesn't mean that when someone opens, when the elder opens up his home, people need to walk in and go, ooh, ah. Right? No, that's not the point. It's got nothing to do with hospitality. 
Not directly. No, the point actually in this particular qualification is not that he has nice things, not that he has an immaculate home. Rather, it simply means that he willingly and eagerly welcomes others into his life. He willingly and eagerly welcomes others into his life. The ancient would have had a hard time understanding and applying this qualification without going immediately to having people in their home. I still think, I still think in the individualized culture in which we live, one of the best ways to serve Christ and serve others is by opening up our homes. I still think this is the case, and I think that's included in this qualification, hospitality. Welcoming others into his life, pouring into the lives of other people, not living an isolated life, so on and so forth. That's what it means to be hospitable. Those who serve as elders, and we're almost done with this character list, those who serve as elders must be spiritually mature. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Another one of those qualifications that we really desperately need as the broader evangelical world. We're so quick to take a young, dynamic leader and thrust him into a position of leadership. I reflect on my own experience. And I'm thankful to God. He's so gracious and merciful and he takes the unideal and he uses it, harnesses it for his glory and for our good. But I had been a Christian. God bless those around me and they were tremendous in so many ways and I'm forever indebted, but I had been a Christian probably for under a year before. And, I, and I, when I say I've been a Christian, I didn't know anything about Christianity and became a Christian, okay? So I couldn't tell you anything about Moses. I couldn't tell you anything about where Genesis was. I mean this. It was all new to me. And I had been a Christian under a year before I was actually in the pulpit. And I look back on that and I think, oh. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'll probably regret saying this. In fact, I know I will, but I've started. And now if I don't say it, you're gonna ask me what I was going to say. We, you know, we actually have video of my first sermon. And I, uh, yeah. And I will tell you, it, is, it really has been the cause of many prayers for a house fire. If I could lose anything, right, from my past, any relic, it would be that. And from time to time, I'll have someone ask the question, hey, can we watch that first sermon? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Nevertheless, the Lord is good. And he's gracious and he's generous. All of, we're reading all of this with that recognition. Charles Spurgeon, I think, started pastoring at 18 years old. I think the Lord used him. But generally speaking, the elder must be spiritually mature. You know, there is... There's a 6th century pastor. Gregory eventually gets known as Gregory the Great. Gregory once warned those who aspired to leadership with these words. He said, 
An inexperienced sailor can steer a ship in calm waters. But even an experienced seaman is disordered by a storm. He goes on to say, for what indeed is a position of spiritual authority but a mental tempest in which the ship of the heart is constantly shaken by storms of thoughts tossed back and forth until it is shattered by a sudden excess of words like hidden rocks of the sea. End quote. How about that imagery? I think that's close to what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Not a recent convert. Someone who has shown some longevity in walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. To summarize what we've said so far, and really we've said most of what we're going to say, it's most of what Paul says. To summarize it, the elder must display exemplary Christian character. Not perfect, exemplary Christian character. Secondly, I want you to notice briefly the elder's capable teaching. The elder's capable teaching. Verse two says that the elder must be able to teach. And I I like that translation. It's one word in the Greek. Uh, He must be apt to teach, able to teach. These are all ways of trying to communicate what this word communicates. And I think it's right. On the one hand, like the other qualifications I would suggest to you that we've looked at, This describes the faithful follower of Jesus Christ and the maturing follower of Jesus Christ. After all, all of us to one degree or another informally and privately are called to teach, right? All of us. All of us are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which by definition is teaching. All parents, this is Mother's Day after all, all parents are called and appointed by Christ to instruct their children in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. All parents, and so on and so forth. And so in some ways, this qualification does apply to the mature saint, really all saints for that matter. On the other hand, I think Paul is being quite specific here. The elder must show a unique degree of ability to teach the doctrines and practices of Christianity. This must be a man who is capable of handling the text of Scripture in a way that's faithful. This tells us something about the function of elders in relation to the church. We mentioned this early on in the sermon. One of the functions of the elders was teaching. And so this shows that function, highlights that function. Now, Paul's concern here, going back to what we said a moment ago as we qualified this, Paul's concern here is not that every elder be the most charismatic or rhetorically gifted teacher of Scripture. It's not what he's saying. I don't think what Paul is saying is that every elder must be someone who's comfortable standing up in this context on the Lord's Day with the microphone and preaching to the entire congregation. I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is insisting upon. I think what Paul rather is encouraging, cultivating, and insisting upon is that the elder displays a basic ability and assumes a willingness to instruct others in the faith. This is someone you could ask to instruct a group of three or four people concerning what the gospel is, This is someone who's able to defend what the church 
believes and cherishes. Simply put, it's someone who has shown both the willingness and the ability to disciple other people in the faith, 2 Timothy 2.2. Someone who recognizes that they've been entrusted with the gospel and their calling is to pass on the gospel to other people. I think that gets at what Paul is talking about here. So I say all of that to say, look, you may be someone, you may be someone who can't even imagine ever preaching, and that's fine. It doesn't mean you're not call, called to be an elder. Many of our elders, while I, I will tell you, I, I serve with tremendous men of God. I, I serve with men who are eager to serve the body of Christ in whatever way Christ calls them to serve the body of Christ. There are some of our elders who, if I asked them to preach on Lord's Day morning, they would they would pause for a moment and wonder what happened and why I was doing this. Some of them, I think, would be bold enough to say, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's a good idea. And yet, I would suggest to you that every one of them is capable or able to teach. Every one of our elders. So I think that's getting close to what the Apostle Paul means here. And what you may do, if you're interested in looking a bit further, you can turn over, not right now, you can, well, although I'm not going to force your hand not to turn the Bible, right? Titus 1, verse 9, you're welcome to jot that down. Paul gets into a little more detail about what he means by able to teach. In Titus 1, verse 9, there are two aspects of teaching. And for the Apostle Paul, he's able to instruct and he's able to refute those who contradict. So you can look at that later. I've heard some pages turning and I would have done the same thing, by the way. If I were you, I would have turned right over to Titus 1 verse 9. Finally, in addition to the elders' exemplary character and capable teaching, we find the elders' godly influence. The elders' godly influence. The elder must be a man whose godly influence is evidenced in his own home. Do you see that? It's observable in his own home, his own household. Look with me at verses four and five. First Timothy three, for those of you who rebelled and went over to Titus one, okay? First, I've already sympathized with you. Now I'm gonna rebuke you. First Timothy three, four and five. Paul writes, he must manage his own household well with all dignity. And I take it, by the way, with all dignity is probably a description with how he does it. It may be a description of the children, but I think it's a description of how he leads. So he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Verse five, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Why is this here? I mean, why, why is the household highlighted as the place where the leader's influence should be evaluated? Let me mention a couple of reasons for this, I think. First of all, there is no other sphere in which the character of a man is known more acutely than in his own home. Another way to say that is, no one knows me more than the people who live with me. I can fake it for a while in front of you. Perhaps not indefinitely, but for a while. But I can't fake it around Tana and my three kiddos. They know who I am. 
that they see me in my best moments, they see me in my worst moments. I think this is one of the reasons why this becomes the sphere of evaluation. Secondly, the home is the closest relational parallel to the church. The home is the closest relational parallel to the church. In fact, I've mentioned this to you a number of times, the primary image of the church in the New Testament is that of a family. That's the most often used image of the church. In fact, it's impact me. If you interact with me much, you know that I oftentimes use the word brother or sister to refer to Christians. And it really is just having been impacted by the way scripture uses this image heavily concerning the church. So the home is where the leader's potential, don't miss this, potential influence in the church can be most accurately projected. Now, if you're squirming a little bit, that's okay, because I am too. And we'll talk about this a little bit before we wrap up. So Paul then goes on to say, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? By implication, how will he care for God's household? If there isn't evidence of him being faithful in a few things, why would the Lord then grant him many things? That's the idea. Argument from the lesser to the greater. Now keep in mind, let me comfort you a little bit here, I hope. Keep in mind, Paul is not saying that the elder's family must be a perfect family where children only and always obey with grateful and sinless hearts. I mean, I can't, I, I can't help but chuckle as I read this text. Reading verses four and five, keeping his children in submission, and I think, okay. <laughs> However, not, so not sinlessness. In fact, in fact, this gets a little controversial, but we don't have time to go there except for me to just mention it, drop a grenade and walk away. I don't think, I don't think that one of the children of an elder experiencing a rebellious stage or maybe even rejecting the faith necessarily disqualifies the elder. I think we're looking at a general picture of his leadership and influence in the home. I do think, now this gets into Titus 1, because Titus 1 uses a particular term Boy, I'm getting to the controversy a little bit. He uses a particular term to describe the children. And the term is a participle, the same word used for believers. We have to turn there now because I've done it. <laughs> if you're hungry, yeah. Part three next week. Titus one, quickly. And I see, look, this is exactly what the Lord does, right? I sympathize with you. Then I rebuked you from going to Titus one. Now I'm taking you to Titus one. <laughs> quickly, very quickly. Titus one, verse six. If anyone is above reproach, this is the parallel passage to First Timothy three. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers is how the English Standard Version translates this. Now, wow, 
Does that mean that every child of an elder must be a believer? I don't think so. For a couple of reasons. One, I think this participle may best be translated faithful. In fact, the same root word is used over in 1 Timothy 3. This saying is trustworthy or faithful. Same root word to describe the saying as describes the children of elders here. So it may be a better translation to say something like, their children must be faithful. I would also add to this that Paul goes on to define what he means. When he says here, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is to say, generally speaking, he's able to lead in such a way that his children follow. I think that's the idea, okay? Now turn back, there's the grenade. First Timothy 3. You can disagree with me. That's okay. That is quite all right. In fact, I, I appreciate it when God's people disagree from the word of God because it shows their belief and submission to the authority of scripture. But I think this is getting close to what Paul is talking about here. That is to say, the man's leadership and influence can be seen in his home can be seen in his home. Now, if out of all of his children, there's only overt rebellion to the faith, there's consistent and characteristic insubordination. Out of all of his children, that's just the way it is. I think that's when we pause. We've got to be faithful to what God says here. I think that's when we pause yeah, there are other things to consider and we should. We should. There are many things to consider. There are various challenges. Those who are born with afflictions that others aren't born with. There is adoption to consider. Okay, there are a whole host of things that have to temper this conversation. But let's not take away a qualification from the portrait we do need to ask the question, what does the household of the man tell me about the influence of the man? We need to ask that question. And Paul asks that question. Well, we need to wrap up, but I want to say a couple more things, which is common, you know. We would do well as we do wrap up this conversation and this portrait of an elder, we would do well to remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2.16. These are words that I remember almost daily. Here's what Paul asks. Who is sufficient for these things? All faithful Christian leaders must recognize that ultimately they are not what the church needs. As a result, they must spend their time, we must spend our time and energies directing the church to the only one who perfectly embodies all that we need. Pictured in this portrait, Jesus Christ. And this brings me back to a passage that I mentioned, I think, in passing last Lord's Day. I'll mention again today, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. 
where Peter writes these words, he, that is Christ, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then verse 25, for you were straying, who? All of us. All of us, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Same word there, overseer. The shepherd, the elder of your souls. The leadership each one of us really needs can only be provided by the overseer. Jesus Christ, who rescued us through his death on the cross in our place and for our sins, who was buried and who was raised in glorious power from the dead. Our hope is in the overseer, the elder, not those who serve under him, not mere men. And God calls to lead in various ways under the authority of Christ. And so I encourage you this morning that if you don't know this overseer, the overseer, the elder, the only one who perfectly embodies everything we find in the portrait we just mentioned, if you don't know this savior, then submit to him this morning. Place your hope and your faith in him. Look, I promise you, I promise you, every church leader will fail you. Well, what does that mean? It means the church is full of sinners. Yeah, sure. But perhaps it also means that you know instinctively you need a leader that can't be found among mere mortals. You need Jesus Christ. So submit to him this morning. And if you have any questions about Christianity, what it means to follow Jesus Christ, the overseer of your soul, would you stay afterward as you exit to the left of the main worship center, you'll find a room called Crossroads. And there's a pastor in there who would love to visit with you about what it means to follow this overseer. Well, let's come full circle. Paul began this text by saying in verse one, if anyone aspires. We didn't unpack that particular verse, but I want to just point it out to you. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. As most of you know, September 11th, 2001 will forever be remembered as a day when our country and the people of our country were threatened. Many lives were lost. I think it was somewhere around 3,000 lives that were lost that day. I was, I was a freshman in college. I'll never forget where I was. Mr. Cruz Turner's class, when I heard the news, a man who taught history and who sat us down and said, you have no idea what this means for our country. I'll never forget that moment. I remember thinking, this may mean I'm going to be serving in our military. He called all of us to that reality. For those of you who are younger, you may not remember what I'm talking about. Doubtless you've heard of it, you've studied it, you've been taught this. It was a day when terrorists hijacked four planes, three of which they successfully flew as missiles into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. But one of the things I'll never forget about that moment in America's history, and in, in my history in particular, 
There were some young, some old, some able-bodied, others physically unable, who decided to offer their service to the armed forces. I'll never forget this. I, I, I started seeing it pop up and reading articles, news articles and so forth and hearing of, of others who were saying they were doing this. There were war veterans who were far past their prime trying to get back into the military. Yeah. There were others who had never served in the armed forces trying to get enlisted to serve their country. In fact, I remember professional athletes I remember a particular NFL player joining a branch of the military to serve their country, giving up their career as a professional athlete to join our armed forces and protect our country. What caused, what caused these many American citizens to suddenly, let's use Paul's language, aspire? aspire to serve in the military, I think it was simply this. They saw that their country was in need and they were willing to meet that need. That was a noble desire. Their desire wasn't for prestige. It wasn't for wealth. It certainly wasn't for comfort. Their desire was for the good of others, even if this meant sacrificing their own lives. This is the kind of desire Paul commends in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. So I ask all of you, would you, would you consider before the Lord? Would you consider out of love for Christ? Would you consider out of a commitment to Christ's church? How might you willingly, humbly, prayerfully aspire to serve Christ and to serve his church? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things, we are not. But you are. Your Son is. And the work of your Spirit is. And so, Father, we ask that you would use us. For some of us, it means serving as elders. For others as deacons, for others as Sunday school teachers, for others moms, dads, for others husbands, wives, for others teachers and instructors in other ways, evangelists, but all of us called to lead to one degree or another, recognizing not because we're not leading because of our sufficiency, we're leading because of your sufficiency. And so do that through us, do that for your glory, and do that for the good of your church. And I pray this on account of Christ, the overseer of our souls. Amen.